Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Bell. This week, I'm talking to Australian journalist Paddy Manning, who was commissioned to write The Successor, a biography of Lachlan Murdoch, the heir to the empire created by his father Rupert. It's a challenge he took up with some trepidation, given the disproportionate power of the Murdochs in the Australian media. He's spoken to over 60 people for the book, which fills in a lot of detail about Lachlan's 51-year-old life that was previously under the radar and goes into the minutiae of deals that tested Lachlan's judgment and negotiating skills, not all of them successfully. I spoke to Paddy via Zoom in Sydney. Paddy Manning, welcome to Life Sentences. Carolyn, thank you for having me. Now, what was the first thing that went through your head when this biography was suggested to you? I have to say there was an element of fear because let's face it, this is the most concentrated media market in the world. I mean, it started out as an idea just for, just by the way, um, to be an Australian book. In the end, rights were sold internationally. And so it's also being released in North America and in England. But yeah, certainly in Australia, where the Murdoch media accounts for something like two thirds of newspaper circulation and also has obviously a pay TV monopoly in Foxtel with Sky News and everything else. Murdoch is an incredibly powerful player. And and so there was a degree of trepidation, I have to say, with whether from, you know, the way I've characterised it is, you know, the book is a pop gun, but they've got the howitzers. And... Uh, <laughs> So I so yeah, there's obviously potential for defamation with any biography, especially if you're writing about the rich and powerful. But yeah, that was all the more so. Let's just talk about that for a moment, because obviously Lachlan Murdoch is in the middle of a case, a defamation case with Crikey. And so does he have a history of being litigious? Well, it's not a long history. I mean, Rupert, his father, famous, famously never sued. He thought it sort of ill-behoved him as a media proprietor to sue another journalist, you know. So, mm-hmm. and of course he doesn't need to, you know, they've got plenty of ways of responding if they're, if they're not happy with, you know, the kind, you know, any aspect of a biography or, you know, uh, reporting about them. So, but Lachlan has, has sued in the past other journalists. He, he, as I write in the book, he sued, a former colleague of mine, actually, and a terrific journalist, uh, Ben Butler, who was then mm-hmm. at The Age and Sydney Morning Herald business desk. And he had insinuated that Lachlan, in his period in Australia, where he had, he'd kind of quit the family business and was out on his own, was still making free use of the News Corporation private jet. And mm-hmm. Lachlan took exception to that because it was wrong. It was actually James who remained inside the family business and who was using the private jet. And so there was an error of fact and Lachlan sued and the pros, he was successful in winning an apology and retraction. And, you know, the damages, it was some $50,000 from memory, were donated to charity. So he, there is this precedent. The Crikey case is very different because, and, and I should mention as a, you know, kind of cautionary kind of note that it is still, you know, before the courts where it's supposed to be set down for a hearing, I think, in March next year. Mm-hmm. And so while we have the pleadings, we haven't yet heard all the evidence here. So everything has to be prefaced by, you know, it's subject to, a, you know, a court hearing. But 
you know, I have done a little bit of reporting. The, the, the crikey litigation happened after my book went to bed. So I, it's not in the book. But yeah, in Crikey's case, Lachlan has sued personally. He's not suing as, you know, the chair or chief executive of Fox Corporation or News. Uh, he's suing in his personal capacity. And it's over a, a line which was written by the political editor at Crikey uh, as part of an, a, an opinion piece, which suggested that Murdoch, it didn't say which, whether it was Rupert or Lachlan, and, quote, the slew of poisonous Fox News commentators were the unindicted co-conspirators with Donald Trump in the January 6th insurrection. So Lachlan's taken exception to that. There's a history and a background to that, which I can go into in, 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 some, in some way if you're interested. But, yeah, Lachlan believes that that is defamatory, malicious, you know, suggesting that he was part of a criminal co-conspiracy sorry, a criminal conspiracy with former President Trump and has, has sued for defamation. I just want to ask you, your book's been out in the world now for a little bit, and I'm just wondering whether through any back channels or unofficial channels amongst the many people who spoke to you off the record, have you had any feedback about what he thinks of the book? I was told that in Lachlan's camp, they believe the book is fair, but he won't read it. And, you know, they no doubt object to certain things. I'm sure there are bits that, that they hate. But overall, you know, I have, I have certainly represented his side of, you know, the various kind of events and issues that I, I canvass in the book. I went to enormous lengths to do that. And I think that there is some recognition on their part that I've, I've made a serious go at presenting a, a balanced a balanced book. And also okay. I think that there were certain red lines, I think, which were, it was all through the, pro, the process of writing the book. It was pretty clear that it was a red line for Lachlan if I started writing about his family, his kids, his mm-hmm. wife. You know, if I mm-hmm. started digging in there, they're not public figures the way he is. He took a view that they are entitled to privacy. And to be honest, Caroline, as a journalist, I think he's right about that. You know, those kids are entitled to their childhood. And so I think I think by kind of agreeing, you know, not in any kind of formal way, but just agreeing that that's out of bounds, I think I've mm-hmm. kind of, I think there's some recognition back from Lachlan's camp that, yeah, I have, I have stuck to those, stuck to those kind of boundaries. So how many people did you actually speak to and how many people only wanted to talk to you off the record? Well, unfortunately, most of them were off the record. So, you know, I, I tallied it up. I, I ran, uh, it was certainly more than 60 people that I interviewed one way or the other. But and overwhelmingly in the US and in Australia, some in the UK, but not so much. He hasn't spent very much time there. And... Yeah, I mean, the, the the kind of difficulty with this book was that Lachlan Murdoch is sort of one of the most powerful Australians in the world. I don't think there's any doubt about it. And his power is no more obvious, nowhere more concentrated than in Australia. So, so I just felt continually surprised, somewhat disappointed, but continually surprised at how few people were willing to go on the record. 
Let's just talk about that for a moment for people who are not journalists, because I think there is a little bit of a nuance to off the record. And so I'm just wondering, does off the record mean I will say something to you, I will give you information or I will give you my opinion or my version of events, but all I ask is that you do not attribute it to me? Yes. So there is a kind of, I think, a little bit of confusion in some people's minds about the difference between background and off the record. And the the way the simplest way I think to clear it up is to say if you're on the record, I can quote Caroline Baum as having said A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. If you're off the record, I might quote a media industry figure who does not mm-hmm. wish to be identified said A, B, and C. Quote end quote. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a quote without a name. But background is there's no quote and there's no name. So this is just information, which I'm telling you, which you can use. But, you know, people sometimes want that extra degree of confidentiality where they feel that, for example, if they use certain idioms, you know, they have a characteristic kind of speaking style, that they might be identified even if their name's not in it. So Mm. they want to be on background. So I think... Yeah, the simplest way to think of those three levels is on the record is names and quotes, off the record is quotes but no name, and background is no name and no quote. And when someone tells you something on background, do you then have to try and find someone else who can give it to you in an attributable form? Otherwise, you can't use it? No. I mean, ideally, yes, but it depends on whether there's you know, corroborating evidence to support what you're being told, whether that's, you know, sort of oral or documentary, whether that's someone else who who confirms or it might be multiple sources or or whether there's kind of supporting documents to, you know, to, to back it up. And, I mean, that is not always possible. You know, sometimes you've got to make a judgment that, you know, the quality of your source or the quality of your information is such that it is worth including even if you can't corroborate it. And I think you would probably then write it with a less degree of certainty, you know. So Mm -hmm. I think there are lots of ways of letting your reader know this is what you think happened, but you can't be 100% certain. Now, do you know whether Lachlan asked friends and colleagues specifically not to talk to you? I don't know it. In all cases, I know, well, yeah, there's, there are kind of a million different shades. There are people who know Lachlan well, for example, who I rang up who said, yeah, look, that should be fine, but I'll, co- I'll come back to you, and then who never did come back to me. So their initial reaction was receptive and happy to talk, and then the trail goes cold. Now, I assume in that situation what's happened, they've gone back to Lachlan and said there's this guy asking me, he's doing a book, should I talk to him or not? And he said, I'd rather you didn't. There are also people I know who would have, who did speak to me on the record, who would only have done that with Lachlan's blessing. But I don't know for a fact in all of those cases that, that, that that's the case, but I suspect it. His life, Lachlan Murdoch's life, a lot of it is in the public sphere. Obviously, a lot of his life is already well known by virtue of his father's life being well known. So what do you think are the key aspects of this story that you shed light on that we didn't know before? Uh, There's a few. 
Uh, there's a few things. I mean, Lachlan has had 30 years in the in the spotlight, uh, yet I think he's re- remained remarkably private. For all of the scrutiny, he has managed to keep his own kind of private, his own opinions and a lot of his life, his family life, to a, a remarkable ex- extent, has has remained private. So, so, and you know, arguably that's partly because he's protected by half the media. You know, nobody at News Corp in any of their outlets is going to turn the spotlight on the proprietor. You know, indeed. On the yeah. other hand, and sorry, and I, I should say he is to a degree is in Rupert's shadow. He has lived his entire life in Rupert's shadow, and to this day people still believe that Rupert is the one calling the shots. And I think that's increasingly not the case. I think increasingly it is Lachlan calling the shots at the family business now, whether that's on the Fox Corporation side or the News Corporation side. And so, but people still assume that that it's Rupert is the mastermind of every of everything that's happening. And so I think there's been a, a kind of, Lachlan has been a little bit sort of overlooked in that way. And so now, bearing that in mind, I think what my book shows a few things. A few I've kind of boiled it down. You know, I've just come off weeks of publicity around the launch, and I've kind of done a lot of interviews and so forth now. And I've kind of boiled it down to a few things. I, I don't. I think the book shows that Lachlan's interests are kind of different from those of his father or his grandfather. The Murdoch genius, I think, over a century now has been to govern by media and they have been kingmakers, you know, politically, both Keith and Rupert on a global scale, Keith Moore. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. But but I'm not sure that Lachlan has that interest. If you look at where he invests and how he runs things, he's not the all-powerful kind of editor-in-chief figure who's highly interventionist in the newsroom, has a huge presence in the newsroom, the way Rupert has always, you know, basically by telephone, always been able to kind of keep his editors on their toes, ringing up at all times, at any time of day from any place in the world to talk about what's your splash and, you know, that's part of who Rupert is. I don't think it's, I don't think it's Lachlan. Lachlan is not the editor-in-chief figure. He he bristles at the suggestion that he runs Fox News. He says that he has capable executives in Jay Wallace and Suzanne Scott who who run Fox News. He's the CEO of Fox Corporation. So he wants to put a, a separation between himself and the actual and the editorial decisions that are being made on a daily, hourly basis at, at Fox News. What he does, whether it's on his own account, investing in Illyria, the private equity firm that he set up when he quit the empire in 2005, he invests in things like Nova, the commercial radio network, or mm-hmm. the Indian cricket team, the Rajasthan Royals, or you know, they, even, even a minority investment in Channel 10. These things don't really burnish his political power. Realestate.com.au, uh, you know, digital real estate, sports betting. Mm-hmm. These things don't, it's not the same as going all out to buy the Wall Street Journal so that you can have a broadsheet in the most powerful country in the world. It's a different, it's a different way of investing. And Lachlan is also more of, sees himself as an investor rather than an operator. So I think that that's one of the key takeouts and that's a, that's a new picture of Lachlan. I also think what, what is new, and this is what most of the media have picked up in the reporting of the book, is the depth of the animosity 
that now exists and the division between Lachlan and James Murdoch. Now, his his younger brother, who's now completely outside the fold. Now, we did mm. know, I mean, James has made some highly public criticisms of Fox News and News Corporation in the last couple of years, especially when he went, went off the News Corporation board. But what we had previously thought was that, you know, Lachlan and Rupert had, as the New York Times revealed, a plan to try and buy James and his two other elder siblings, Prue and Liz, buy them out of the business. What I revealed is that that option, although it did, it didn't happen in any case, and that so that's not that's not new. But but what I revealed is that that option is off the table, and that Lachlan's siblings have every intention of reasserting control of the business, Murdoch businesses once Rupert dies. And, mm. and as as it was put to me, and the quote I would refer to is that they will do that in a way that promotes democracies around the world rather than undermining them. And I think that's a very significant shot across the bows of both Rupert while he's alive and Lachlan, that those siblings, James, Prue and Liz, do intend, bearing in mind everything that we've learned about the January 6th insurrection from the congressional hearings and, you know, the big lie court cases that are coming against Fox next year, the, the siblings are determined to bring that business, something back to the middle. Okay, I love this because this segues very neatly into talking about the title of the book, The Successor, which obviously references the show that we all love, Succession, which at least initially was said to be a portrait inspired loosely by the dynamics of succession within the Murdoch empire. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about in relation to that is that succession shows us this character of Logan Roy, the patriarch, as a man who doesn't seem to enjoy anything that his wealth has brought him. He's just basically obsessed with the deal. Now, I've spoken to people who worked very closely with Rupert over the years and said that is a very accurate portrayal of Rupert. He doesn't, unlike, say, Kerry Packer, who lived large and loved gambling and horses and women and, you know, really enjoyed what his wealth brought him. Rupert is a rather sort of ascetic figure who doesn't appear to get all that much pleasure from what his wealth has brought him. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think gives Lachlan pleasure in terms of what his extraordinary wealth has been able to give him in life? In a word, sailing. <laughs> he has spent extraordinary amounts of money on it seems like every decade he gets a bigger boat, a bigger sailing boat. So he has a passion for sailing that he's inherited from his father. So Rupert himself had done the Sydney to Hobart. Lachlan did it three times, including in 1998, when, you know, tragically six sailors died in, the, you know, mm. the worst conditions they'd ever experienced. Uh, but Lachlan has, is completely different to Rupert in that respect. It was actually a point of friction during the succession battles when Lachlan and James were both inside the business, that Lachlan was constantly off on holidays with Sarah and the kids, you know, sailing, you know, it might be the Caribbean, it might be the Mediterranean. And, yeah, he is famously, according to people who've worked with him, you can never quite be sure where he is. <laughs> yeah, he could be anywhere in the world at any point in time, but he's quite often on sailing. The other, the other, his other great passion is mountain climbing. So, uh, so he he was a, a accomplished uh, rock climber, 
uh, in his university years and almost went professional. So there's a real adventurous side to Lachlan that I think I hope comes through strongly in the book. But the flip side of that is he's not the workaholic either that Rupert or his grandfather Keith were. No. No, he's not chained to the desk. He doesn't see himself as that kind of manager. But let me ask you then, Paddy, does that sense of adventure and risk and challenge and speed that he gets from rock climbing and from sailing, does that translate into his attitude to business? Is he a risk taker in business or is he cautious? No, he's quite cautious. And so it's very different. You know, again, he, he's very different to Rupert. You know, Rupert famously outlays $6 billion to buy the Wall Street Journal and ev- his own executives like Peter Chernin thought it was way over the top. The price was, you know, unjustifiable. Now, I think that's a separate argument because fast forward 15 years or, or, or whatever, it's maybe slightly more now, it's 40 and 07, 15 years. So fast forward and that is one of, that's a powerhouse, that Dow Jones business that real that makes money and carries still uh, an, an enormous amount of prestige for the, for the news corporation. So I think, you know, Rupert is probably glad he he bought it, I'm sure. But Lachlan, I'm told, is allergic to overpaying. And Mm -hmm. if you look at the acquisitions he's made, they've been modest and he prefers to focus on sort of organically growing these businesses. He he thinks the Murdoch kind of genius is to be a challenger, a, a disruptor, an outsider. He thinks the, the best tradition of, of News Corporation is, is running lean and he puts that kind of, he traces that back to the kind of Scottish uh, uh, parsimony <laughs> of, his, of his family's kind of heritage, you know, Keith and Patrick before him. So I think that, yeah, it is an area where Lachlan is, yeah, different to, quite different to Rupert. And so if it, if it means... $400 million to buy an ad-supported streamer in Tubi or, you know, a thing called, I mean, Lachlan's favourite deal was spending $10 million to buy a stake in realestate.com.au that turns into a, over years, multi-billion dollar asset. That's probably the deal he was most proud of. But it doesn't involve a huge outlay. It doesn't involve betting the farm. It doesn't involve, you know, breaking the bank. It involves small outlay and then patient kind of growth. It's a very different strategy. He sees himself as Australian. Yes. And he's very proud of that. And I'm just wondering why you think that's important to him in the context of the US and the global media world that he operates in. Yeah, there's. I have a kind of few thoughts about that. You know, the way he talks about it, both his parents are Australian, his wife is Australian, and so he he talks about being embarrassed about his American accent. He is the <laughs> one, the only one who really spends a lot of time in Australia of the three kids. Prue, his oldest sister by uh, Rupert's first marriage, does divide her time between Sydney and London. But of mm-hmm. the three kids to Anna that uh, work in the business, he's the only one that spends any considerable time here in Australia. And, you know, by, as well as I was told, he really identifies with Australia. I think he believes that we genuinely do have a better kind of quality of life. And so he comes here in his early 20s and has a great time. You know, he's 
probably the most eligible kind of bachelor in the country. He starts in Brisbane, comes down to Sydney. By the time he leaves in 2000, after sort of, you know, six or seven years, uh, uh, he came out in 1994. By the time he leaves in 2000, when he, when he comes to announce that he's going to head back to New York where he'd grown up, he bursts into tears. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he really did enjoy working, living and working here. Okay, but you can hardly call him egalitarian when it comes to his lifestyle. Uh, You know, he's so completely removed from the average Australian in every way. So what do you think being Australian means to him? I mean, yes, the lifestyle here, he had a great time as an eligible bachelor. Nobody can dispute that. Nobody can dispute that the quality of life here might be better than it is in America in many ways in terms of being healthy and outdoorsy and all of that stuff. But what do you think being Australian means to him in the business world, do you think that it confers a kind of rebellious outsider streak on him that appeals to that romantic part of his nature? Yes, and I think the way Cole Allen was one of the people that kind of one of Lachlan's most trusted executives and former editor of the New York Post for more than a decade, I think I think more than 15 years actually, and so one of Lachlan's closest allies, I'm sure that Cole would not have spoken to me and gone on the record without Lachlan's permission and support. So Lachlan, the way Cole Allen put it, he believes that Lachlan, despite his privilege and despite his wealth and despite his upbringing, can identify with, you know, the common person. And I think that he does put that down to his Australian kind of roots. And mm-hmm. he, he likens it to, he thinks Lachlan can identify with middle America. Uh, not the coastal elites of LA and New York. And he thinks that Lachlan's experience in Australia is key to that. Because mm-hmm. I suppose when you, once you come from, you know, New York and, you know, Princeton and, and education in the best schools and, you know, all, all the the trappings of wealth that, you know, Lachlan, you know, throughout his whole upbringing in New York, you know, had experienced. And then you drop him in Brisbane in the middle of the Super League war, and he's got to get on with footballers, you know, who are, for example, like Willie Kahn, who I interviewed, uh, tough as nails, farming, son of a farmer from western west of Roma in Queensland, and and he'll say, oh, yeah, no, Lachlan's really, you know, sort of no nonsense, down to earth, very polite, charming bloke. And so I suppose they were trying to knock some of the, I mean, the Murdoch kids, you, you talk about Rupert as an ascetic. The Murdoch, Anna was a strict disciplinarian. The Murdoch kids were kind of, it was drilled into them that they, that they you know, well, they, they have actually famously good manners, Lachlan does in particular. And, you know, the way Lachlan talks about his own upbringing in New York, he thinks New York, there's a levelling kind of aspect to New York. Everyone walks, you know, you're out on the street all the time. I, I have the same scepticism as you. How can you, have, if you've got nothing, you've got so much privilege, you've got so much, you can have anything you want, how can you identify with the ordinary person? But but this is the picture that I was given from, mm. you know, from people like Cole. He will say, Lachlan can identify with middle America partly because of his experience in Australia. 
Let me ask you about one of his friends then and someone with whom he's also been involved in a in a business stumble. I'm thinking about the OneTel debacle. I wanted to ask you about his friendship with James Packer because James is an entirely different kettle of fish in terms of background, upbringing, how he was parented, and obviously has been struggling in the public eye with mental health for many years now. I was wondering what you think the friendship between those two men is about and whether Lachlan has been there for James when times have been bad. Is he a loyal friend? Is he a fair weather friend? Has that friendship cooled? When Lachlan first comes out to Australia in his 20s, he doesn't know James Packer at all. Packer Mm -hmm. reaches out to him and... To, to welcome him and to make it clear that as far as he's concerned, the next generation, the two Sions, should not assume that they're going to be at war. Mm-hmm. Packer v Murdoch was a you know story of their fathers and not necessarily a story of them, for them. And, you know, they were socialising together. Pretty soon they were investing together. But as it happened, they were both fronting competing camps in the Super League war. And so mm-hmm. in the first couple of years... And in fact, I think the Suns did break the ice and, and set the scene for a peace deal between the Packer and Murdoch camps, which is one of the little newsy bits of the book of how they went on a, a Kerry Packer's boat and had a drinkathon, a bit of a party <laughs> in their 20s. But the, and they didn't, but anyway, they broke the ice and they were both agreed that, you know, the Super League, you know, it was costing both sides a lot of money and they needed to find a resolution, which Rupert and Kerry subsequently did. But, but, James and Lachlan then have a long history, which is kind of remarkable, and they have stayed through thick and thin. They have stayed friends. And not that they're seeing each other every week or month, you know, maybe two or three times a year, but they both still maintain, I think, a quite an intimate friendship. And, you know, that's the, the kind of business highs and lows are kind of well-known, whether you go from Super League to OneTel to realestate.com.au to Channel 10. They've invested alongside each other, you know, over more than 25 years. Not only that, I think that they, I mean, if you read Damon Kitney's biography of James, Clint is, and, and that's, a, that's a careful biography. If you read it, Lachlan is, you know, full of praise for the way James has, you know, dealt with his relationship breakdowns, his mental health issues, which are now well and truly, you know, on the record. Mm. They both talk very fondly of each other in that book. And in Mm. in my interview with James Packer, he spoke very fondly of Lachlan still. Now, of course, I didn't get to interview Lachlan to ask him about James, but I think that there's uh, a respect, there is a mutual respect there and an appreciation that even if they've, you know, in some ways they've, you know, they've lost lots of money together but they've also made a bit and, yeah. I don't think Lachlan's a fair-weather friend to Packer. I think he's there are moments that have tested the relationship and we, where there still would be, I think, differences of opinion about, you know, the way the way they should have handled Channel 10 or whether they should have gone ahead and bought CMH back in the financial crisis. And, you know, they, they you could still argue about those things. But I think at, at, the, at a basic level, they're still mates. Okay. Does Lachlan listen to advice or does he tend to act on his own? And if he does listen to advice, who are his most trusted sort of conciliary figures apart from his father? 
Yes, he, he does listen to advice. And interestingly enough, he's he's kind of got a kind of, well, there used to be a network of, when he was based in Australia, called w- Women of Illyria. He seems to kind of promote women, uh, bring women up around him. And some of the his most trusted lieutenants certainly are women. Whether that's Siobhan McKenna, his longtime partner at Illyria, who's now the head of News Corp Australia Broadcasting, and who has, yeah, undoubtedly will go on to higher positions within the empire. Rebecca Brooks over in England, you know, famously and still oh, yes. subject of, you know, legal proceedings out of the phone hacking scandal, but one of the most trusted, yeah, executives but both by Rupert and but also by Lachlan. They are very close. Suzanne Scott running Fox News. So, yeah, he, interestingly enough, has had seen women in senior positions, Kathy O'Connor at, at Nova, Tracy Fellows at realestate.com.au. You know, so that's, that's a kind of interesting side to Lachlan. There mm. is also a relationship he has with Viet Dinh, who is godfather to his eldest son, Callan and who is the group, you know, chief counsel and, you know, regulatory affairs boss at, at Fox Corporation. He is seen as a very close ally of, of Lachlan's. Although it kind of, it was, he's had one of those moments where he kind of got cl- too close to the sun. You know, there were reports that he was actually the guy running uh, Fox Corporation and Lachlan was kind of, well, Lachlan was jetting around the world and in particular basing his family here in Australia during the pandemic. And Lachlan didn't take kindly to that. So, You mentioned Rebecca Brooks there in passing, amazing her ability to survive after the Leveson inquiry. I'm wondering what you think the impact of the Leveson inquiry was on Lachlan in terms of his moral compass? Well, that is a good question, Carolyn, because the phone hacking itself was reprehensible. Lachlan was on the other side of the world. Of any of the Murdochs, he was the least involved. He did remain on the board of News Corporation. I find it stunning that the board of News Corporation didn't take more action once the Guardian had reported in 2009 that phone hacking was much more widespread than previously thought and and was going to cost business dearly in terms of you know, a wave of class actions that were coming. I can't believe that it took the Millie Dowler revelations in 2011 before that crisis really kind of escalated uh, and and the board obviously then was on the back foot. Lachlan's role was to fly over and kind of turn the guns outwards. So it, when once the Millie Dowler story broke, there was then an all hell breaks loose in 2011 and there's then a question of like okay who is who is for the high jump and you know one of Rupert's you know decades long most loyal executives Les Hinton takes a fall and then there's a question of whether James himself should should be sacked and mm-hmm. and Liz and Rupert Liz is gunning for James her brother Rupert is sitting on the fence but inclined to to ask James to take leave or or to resign. James calls Lachlan and says, I need your help. He, Lachlan, flies over to London and so does Anna, comes over, even though she can barely stand talking to Rupert after their, you know, painful divorce, protracted divorce negotiations. She can barely stand 
dealing with Rupert, but she's worried, you know, that James might even go to jail, right? This is what's kind of in the, in the media at the time, in the middle of this maelstrom. Mm-hmm. And Lachlan's advice and counsel was that they should not do anything rash. They should not sack James. He, he to this day, says he saved James' job at that time and that they should kind of turn the guns outwards and defend. Hmm. Now, what does that say about his moral compass? I mean, he, he was not personally implicated and, you know, no one I spoke to in the UK says, oh, yeah, Lachlan knew anything about the phone hacking. James himself, let's remember, had not been responsible for the newspapers when the hacking was occurring. He was responsible exactly. for B Sky B. Mm-hmm. So, but I think, so I think Lachlan kind of emerges from, I mean, when it comes to the succession and the title of the book, The Successor, I think really the seeds of Lachlan's succession were sown at that time in that phone hacking crisis, which split the family. It, you know, it meant that Liz was out of the picture for good. It tarnished James and Lachlan was kind of the last man standing as a, as a you know, once all the dust had settled. I mean, it still hasn't completely settled, but, you know, once, you know, for example, it was clear that the FBI investigation in the US it was not going to go anywhere. Once it was clear that Rebecca herself was not going to go to jail, you know, and therefore no one higher up than her would go, would was going to go to jail. So, you know, once, once it kind of the fallout had settled, you know, Lachlan was, I think, then fr- from that point on, the lead candidate, as he had been in the 90s, to take over from Rupert. And that's how it's mm. panned out. That's fascinating. So let me ask you this. You mentioned the acrimonious divorce from Anna and obviously Rupert then remarried to Wendy Deng. What is Lachlan's relationship like with his half-sisters, the daughters that Rupert had with Wendy? Well, I'm told it's good. And so this is against the criticism, for example, that Fox News is racist and someone like Tucker Carlson operates the most racist cable television program in history, as the New York Times reported after an investigation and analysis of all of the episodes of Tucker Carlson tonight. Hundreds of references to the Great Replacement Theory, explicitly racist. He has two Asian-American nieces. He has, I mean, sorry, he has two Asian-American sisters. Uh, he has... Uh, half-sisters. Uh, well, half-sisters. Half-sisters and not by choice. That's true. But, you know, for example, Grace has already interned at News Corporation. You know, she so she has been, you know, and, and I'm told any of his family are welcome to come and work in the business at any time. He would, he would nothing would make him happier. You know, he has two African-American nieces through the first marriage of his older sister Liz. So... You know, they're saying, how could Lachlan be racist? And, you know, a lot of people say he is at a personal level, open-minded, tolerant of, you know, and pro-diversity. He was, in his 20s, he was anti-Pauline Hanson. He was, he was you know, pro-Republic. You know, lots of gay mates. Uh, he is completely, you know, I, I'm presented with a picture of a kind of a family man cares about his own family, but also the broader extended family and also someone who's very kind of, at a personal level, very well-mannered and tolerant. Hmm. Are you convinced by that? I can't say I am. We got sidetracked a bit when I asked Paddy about Lachlan's fairly relentless attack on public broadcasting. 
I then asked him to elaborate on where Lachlan's political sympathies lie in terms of US politics. Lachlan's position, the politician that he has most closely aligned with is Mitch McConnell, the now Senate minority leader, who he's donated more than a million dollars to the Senate leadership fund that McConnell runs. And he's had private meetings with McConnell. Now, McConnell hates Trump. McConnell is trying, has not spoken to Trump, I'm told, since the January 6th attack. He is trying to put uh, distance between uh, the GOP and Trump. But it's a delicate thing. And, you know, Lachlan's own employees, whether it's Tucker Carlson or Laura Ingram, they seem to be uh, wavering about Trump. So one minute you Mm, see Tucker having, uh, you know, at at the Live Golf Tournament with Trump, in a private box laughing it up. But then on the other hand, you'll have Laura Ingram, you know, making a point that the Trumpism and MAGA is not all about one person and and openly backing DeSantis. Mitch McConnell thinks that our memories are very short if he doesn't think that we remember his compliance and his complicity with Trump before January 6th. Yes. I want to ask you, Lachlan says, he always says that he stands for free speech. And and you said before that he couldn't possibly be racist, certainly not as far as his family life, his private life is concerned. But it is the fact that he is often allowing or fanning prejudice, racism and hateful values that are polarising and divisive on media like Fox News. So it's just a complete contradiction, isn't it? Well, I, I suppose it's a contradiction. What's, contra- what's the contradiction? If you, if you support... He may be privately, he might be more socially progressive than he appears to be privately. Mm. But in public, even if he's defending free speech, he is actually fanning hateful ideology. Yes. Well, he would say he is not. What he is doing is allowing free speech, including by people like Tucker Carlson, who he might not always agree with Tucker, but he would sort of defend his right to say what he thinks. Now, Tucker actually and Lachlan have a pretty good relationship. Lachlan has stood Mm. by Tucker in some of his most, in the middle of some of his most controversial kind of moments. I think that Lachlan... Lachlan's people, certainly that I was talking to, they were keen to tell me that he would still describe his politics as socially liberal and economically conservative. I think that's impossible to reconcile uh, both with the content of Fox News, although I can see that that Fox News is not a reflection of Lachlan's politics. I don't think you can draw a straight line between them, although I did quote Kevin Rudd as saying, until Lachlan comes out and identifies where he differs with Fox News then viewers are entitled to say that he agrees with Fox News. Mm. Now, now I'm not sure that that's fair, and Lachlan would certainly not agree with that, with Rudd on that point. But I don't see how you can reconcile being socially liberal with donating more than a million dollars to Mitch McConnell, who was a Trump enabler and also is the architect of the conservative supermajority on the US Supreme Court, you know, who did make it impossible for Obama to appoint Merrick exactly. Garland and who who threw all precedent out the window when putting up Amy Coney Barrett uh, in 2020. So, 
And then you have these shock rulings, whether it's Dobbs on, you know, abolishing Roe v. Wade or open carry of firearms in New York or uh, the US EPA's ability to regulate climate change. I mean, that court now is taking extreme positions that are way to the right of the American people. And how can you support that and and call yourself socially liberal? I I think that's inconsistent. Okay, I've got two more questions for you. Now, you've, you've mentioned giving some money to political funds and to political campaigns, but overall in the book, I don't find many mentions of philanthropy except in terms of donations to fire victims in Australia after the bushfires in 2019. Does Lachlan have an impulse towards patronage of any particular causes as opposed to political parties? The charity, I think, or the, you know, philanthropic investment, if you like, that he's, he and Sarah have made the most, given the most money to is, uh, is the Murdoch Children's Research Institute where they've donated millions and millions of dollars. So I think there was at least one donation of $5 million. And Sarah has been on the board. I think she's chaired that body that was set up by Dame Elizabeth. So that's where he's poured most of his money. I'm not aware of his philanthropic money. I'm not aware of huge donations by Lachlan. Mm. They don't have a foundation mm-hmm. per se, you know, the Murdoch, um, a Murdoch foundation, for example, the way, you know, other billionaires have got high profile foundations, whether it's Ramsey or Forrest, or you can mention quite a few. So yeah, it's a little bit hard to pick. I mean, he has, you know, his latest boat is worth $175 million. He, which is still waiting for it to be delivered, it's the largest carbon fibre sailing vessel ever built in the Netherlands. I'm not sure that he is a, has a huge philanthropic impulse. You got a harsh critical review from Charles Kaiser recently in The Guardian, which said that you were soft on Lachlan in several instances. And I just wanted to know how you respond to that. Reject the idea that I've pulled any punches, to be honest, which is kind of the central criticism of his review. I don't think I did pull any punches. I I, um, have been very critical of Lachlan where I think it's merited. But I did take a view that a sort of 100,000-word anti-Murdoch rant was not going to be a biography. And the most interesting thing, I think, you know, the most important challenge for me, there has been 50 books about Rupert, was to point out where Lachlan was different from Rupert. You know, and I also wanted to make sure that I fairly represented his side of the story. And, yeah, so anyway, no apologies from me on that. According to many observers, Lachlan Murdoch appears to be even more right-wing than his father politically, despite saying in his youth that he was socially progressive. Where is the evidence for that? There's not much of it in this biography. Most intriguingly, though, Paddy Manning does signal a watch-this-space element of succession-worthy plot twists in flagging an intention by Lachlan's siblings to roll him once their father dies. Now, wouldn't that be something for future biographers? Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. If you like us, please leave us a review wherever you listen. The show is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Pipe Wolf Media. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to the traditional elders of the land. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown. This episode of Life Sentences was produced with a grant from Create New South Wales and I would like to acknowledge their generous support.